Good morning, everyone. Welcome back. I'm Rick Brown. Thank you for joining us on today's Seek First podcast, where we share biblical truth and engage in today's culture. Take a minute to subscribe to the Seek First podcast. Thanks, everyone. Stick around. I think you're going to be encouraged. Spending time with the Lord will be the best part of your day. So let's get ready. Grab your Bible, prepare your heart and mind. Let's go. We will be looking at the book of Leviticus, chapters 1 through 3. So if you have your Bible, open up to Leviticus, chapters 1 through 3, for our message, Meeting My Greatest Need. The book of Leviticus has you excited, I can tell, already. Leviticus is one of those books that, as a young Christian, I read the New Testament a couple of times. And then I said, I think I'm ready to launch into the Old Testament. So man, I took off in Genesis like a wildfire, went through Exodus, loved it. Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, nosedive crash. Let's go back to the New Testament, read the New Testament, did that a couple of times, came back. I I think I can get through Leviticus this time. Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, I barely make it and go out the other end. Leviticus has... Uh, really a bad reputation for an important book with incredible truths that are truly life-changing because we can see the New Testament principles that are revealed to us through this passage of Scripture as we apply them to the Lord Jesus. And when we look at meeting your greatest need, what are the greatest needs that you have in your soul? You are a spiritual being and people that are not walking with God, and they're trying to simply live on two planes, the physical plane and the soulish plane without tapping into the spiritual plane, will constantly find themselves empty and dry and groping for that missing piece to their life. In the book of Genesis, we see the story of the Lord bringing a people together for his name through Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. The book of Exodus is the story of them growing in population to two to three million people over a 400 year period of time, but they're under the bondage of a harsh taskmaster by the name of Pharaoh. And this Old Testament picture is also revealed to us in a New Testament way, as the old adage is, the New Testament is in the Old Testament concealed as the Old Testament is in the New Testament revealed. Meaning that Egypt is a picture of a sinful world. Pharaoh is a picture of Satan. The people in slavery, it's a picture of bondage and sin. And they need a deliverer, so they cry out to God. And he sends a savior, the deliverer, the redeemer, if you will, the one's going to rescue them, Moses, which is a great picture of the Lord Jesus that's going to come on the world scene and save us. Now, if you go through that, these people are, quote, saved. They trust in the Lord. They exit out of Egypt. They go through the Red Sea. How do you baptize an entire nation? You take them through the Red Sea, according to Paul the Apostle in 1 Corinthians chapter 10. They're all baptized into uh, Moses, and they go into the wilderness, and now they get the law. They get 10 commandments, which is really the picture or aspiration of what God wants in a human being. Now, we fall short of that, but that leads us to the doorstep of now how do you have daily ministry at a place called the tabernacle and interact and deal with people's sins. That leads us to the threshold 
of the book of Leviticus. Stand with me. We're going to read the first nine verses here in Leviticus chapter 1 as we look at our message, Meeting My Greatest Need. Now the Lord called to Moses and spoke to him from the tabernacle of meeting, saying, Speak to the children of Israel and say to them, When any one of you brings an offering to the Lord, you shall bring your offering of the livestock of the herd of the flock. If his offering is a burnt sacrifice of the herd, let him offer a male without blemish. He shall offer it of his own free will at the door of the tabernacle of meeting before the Lord. Then he shall put his hand on the head of the burnt offering, and it will be accepted on his behalf to make atonement for him. He shall kill the bull before the Lord, and the priest, Aaron's sons, shall bring the blood and sprinkle the blood all around the altar that is by the door of the tabernacle of meeting. And he shall skin the burnt offering and cut it into pieces. The sons of Aaron, the priests, shall put on fire, uh, put fire on the altar and lay the wood in order on the fire. Then the priest Aaron's sons shall lay the parts, the head, and the fat in order on the wood that is on the fire upon the altar, but he shall wash its entrails and its legs with water. And the priest shall burn all on the altar as a burnt sacrifice, an offering made by fire, a sweet aroma to the Lord. Father, we ask now that as we offer in prayer to you the smell of incense, Lord, a picture of our prayers rising to the heavens. Lord, a sweet-smelling aroma that, Lord Jesus, you are that ultimate sacrifice that is a sweet-smelling aroma on our behalf. And yet, Lord, we offer ourselves to you, to belong to you, to walk with you, to have you meet those greatest needs within our souls. And Lord, I pray for the men and women that are here tonight, that you would meet the needs, each one unique, each one different set of circumstances. You know every hair upon their head. You know the issues they're facing. Lord, would you meet them here in this tent of meeting, if you will. Lord, to touch our hearts and draw us close. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, as we look at this meeting of our greatest needs. The first six chapters in this book are offerings or sacrifices that are going to meet the need to belong, meet my need to respond, meet my need for peace, meet my need to confess, and my need to restore. Now, we're not going to get to the last two, but we're going to look at the first three as we focus on the first three chapters, just highlighting these truths. You see, the whole goal, the theme verse for the book of Leviticus is chapter 20, verse 26. It says, you shall be holy to me, for I am the Lord, am holy, and have separated you from the peoples that you should be mine. The Lord says, I want you to be a holy people. Now, the word holiness gets a bad rap and turns a lot of people off because as soon as you hear the word holiness, you think of some sour believer that's been sucking on lemons all week. There's this understanding that you have that is a misunderstanding that holiness somehow is somebody that is very unhappy and does nothing in their life. <laughs> but that is not what holiness is about. As a matter of fact, if you back up and just think of being whole rather than a diminished version of yourself, you get a sense in which God wants you to be whole. He wants you to experience the fulfillment 
As Jesus said, the thief has come to steal, kill, and destroy, but I have come that you might have life and that more abundantly. You think of something that uh, when I was a young believer, I was struck by this verse in 1 Chronicles 16, 29, worship the Lord in the beautiness, in the beauty of holiness. And so what am I worshiping in the, how, how is holiness beautiful? Well, homeless is beautiful when something is the way that it is created and designed and being fulfilled, right? Like a couple of cars here. Check out these cars, right? On the one, and this is a picture of your life. Are you the dumpster fire there on the left, right? That's kind of before Jesus, right? BC days, that's what your life looked like before, without Jesus. And, and now we look at this cool red car. We say, man, that's a beautiful car. The other day I saw this incredible, an unusual color, like a, a special color red on this truck. And I was telling the person that I was with, man, that is a beautiful truck. Look at that color. It's just beautiful. Now, usually you wouldn't say beautiful vehicles, but you do. Because it is, everything is there. Everything is the way it's supposed to be in fulfillment of the designer's purpose. But when something's missing, something's detracted, something's broken, something's diminished, like a house, the same thing. Here on the left, somebody, you know, was roasting s'mores in their living room and burned up the house. And that house is not whole any longer. And there's something that lacks beauty. But the house on the right is something that is fulfilling its purpose and it's a beautiful home. Now extrapolate that to your life. Is your life, is there a holiness, a wholeness that God is bringing fulfillment and satisfaction and creating in you the dimensions of his nature and his character that reflect him? So the whole goal of Leviticus is to bring you and I into an understanding as far as those who are Old Testament believers, we see a greater fulfillment in our life in Jesus, and we'll be mentioning that throughout. But for them, they got the law, they got the word of God, but now they need to know how to interact with God as sinful humans that God has redeemed and rescued. And your greatest need that you'll ever have is the need to belong. The need to belong. The need to feel like you're connected to someone, something, some group, This is such a strong desire within us. Now this burnt sacrifice, the very first offering in this list, is about you fully belonging to God of your own free will, you offering him just like a person would an animal. It's basically through the illustration of the bull, you lay your hands on it, you identify with that bull, and then that bull is killed, and his blood is sprinkled, and the burnt sacrifice is unusual different than the other sacrifices, this entire animal is put on the altar and burned up. It's a picture of you dedicating your entire life to God and now belonging to God. But this is a free will. It's a choice that nobody can make for you. Even Jesus as the ultimate sacrifice said, nobody takes my life from me. I lay it down and I'll take it back up again. He freely laid his life down and then he freely took it up again in the resurrection. But this picture that uh, 
they were to put everything in order. In verse nine, it says, and he shall wash its entrails and its legs. As I belong to God and I now dedicate, as this picture of the sacrifice is, but for me spiritually, for you spiritually, as I offer myself, the Lord washes us and cleanses us on the inside and he also cleanses, it says, washes its legs. So the picture is now my insides that needed to wash. Now, most of you took a shower today to show up at church, right? We got the outside washed, but some of us haven't got the inside washed yet. And so here, this picture is washing the inside of your life in your relationship with God as you belong to God and also your legs. So now I can walk with God in a way that is clean and pleasing to him because that would bring me into a whole relationship in usefulness. I am his creation. He is my creator. Now I'm all his. Now, this understanding is so vital that people long for belonging. And think about it. Now, I have just sat by my mom's bedside for the last five days in Idaho. She's dying of stage four cancer. She will pass away in the night tonight or in the next day or two. My brother and sister are there with her beside her bedside as I came home for the weekend and I'll be going back on Monday. But my mom has this incredible gift to love and accept people in a way that is supernatural. Her home is Grand Central Station of the most uh, unusual group of people from the neighborhood. And they all flow through the house and they, they, they all call her Aunt Donya or they call her mom or they, you know, and, and they're coming through. Now, because she's now on um, the last few days of her life, we've had to slow that down and and, and some of the people that um, we've just had to ask them, hey, you know, these last couple of days, we just can't have as much traffic here in, in the bedroom while my mom's on her last few days. And, and one of the young men, he's disabled and he doesn't have a friend in the world and he's about 30 or so. And he was standing outside. He had been, you know, we let him know. And I went out and talked to him. His name's Bradley. And Bradley, he so wanted to be close, but we told him that we weren't going to have as many visitors. So Bradley didn't know what to do, so he just came and stood outside the house. He stood outside the picture window. He stood next to the, the house. He, he just stared at us in an unusual, uncomfortable way. So I went out and talked to Bradley. I said, Bradley, you know what's going on, right? Because he is disabled, and I, I, I'm not sure how much he was really gathering of things. And I said, you know, my mom's not going to be alive, but a few days, Bradley. And I said, I hope you understand. She loves you very much, and, and I know you care for her. And tears began to run down his face, and he said, this is going to be so hard. You see, for Bradley, my mom is his best friend because Bradley doesn't have any friends. He lives with his dad, who puts a, keeps a roof over his head. But there was a steady stream all week long, five days, of people I don't know. They all say, you know, they addressed me by name, mom showed them pictures, and they know me, but I don't know all these people. And there's a longing 
to belong. Not only a longing, but there's actually a human need. One of what you would call, I guess, one of my younger sisters, my mom took as a couple of month old baby whose parents were meth addicts. And my mom was watching the child one day. They brought her by, dropped her off. And she seemed so unhealthy, my mom took her to the emergency room and the doctor said, there's nothing wrong with this child. They examined the child. But this child is failing to thrive because nobody touches or holds this child. And so my mom asked this couple, can I take care of her until you can figure out your life? And now she's 23 years old and she calls my mom, mom, and my mom has raised her from the time she was a couple of months old. You see, there's attachment disorders that people have if they actually don't have enough human touch, if they don't connect, if they don't belong. Kids in rough neighborhoods so want to belong that they'll join a gang so that they belong to something. And the initiation is that gang beats them up. When I was a youth minister in San Jose and there was a lot of gangs, I would see a kid come into youth group and he's like black and blue, he's all beat up. I'm like, what's up? He's like, nothing, man, I joined the family. So excited about joining the family. I'm like, that's what your family did? He said, yeah, that's, that's, they're showing the love. That's how you're initiated. They beat the tar out of you. Now you're in. What links will people go to have a sense of belonging? Even maybe for some of you here today, there's been something broken inside of you because of feeling like you were abandoned when you were growing up. The parents rejected you or people rejected you and there's this loneliness because the, your ultimate greatest need is the sense that you belong, that you belong. In such a contrast, on the same time yesterday as I was hanging out with my mom on her deathbed, I get a phone call from the hospital from my stepdad, who is actually my mom's second husband. My mom's been married four times, so the second guy, he had nowhere to go, and so his best friend in the world, even though my mom and him were no longer married, he moved to town just to be close to her because he had never felt loved and accepted like that. But now he's in the hospital, and His family has rejected him and have nothing to do with him. And so they called me that I got on the list somehow. And here was a guy that was adopted when he was a kid, grew up with a chip on his shoulder because he felt like he never belonged. He never knew who his parents were. Why did they get rid of him? And in bitterness, he went on a lifelong journey of being a career criminal and violent. And that's the guy that raised me. And these two things are in such incredible polar opposite type of situations. He's in a hospital room with nobody. Because he's really lived his life that way. And my mom can't even speak now. And there is a flood, literally, of dozens of people coming through the house every single day from the neighborhood. Calling her aunt, mom. And I always joked with my mom, because it's been this way our whole life, that my mom will take in any stray cat, literally cats, dogs, people. One day on the back porch, this cat jumped up 
and my mom and I looked at him through the back window, and he had jumped up about five feet and was grabbed a hold of the window like this and looked inside. And my mom said, oh, look at there. I said, mom, don't feed him. Don't feed him. She's like, how can I resist? She made her open the can of tuna, took it out, and, that, and we had Scrambler, which we called him Scrambler, for years until Scrambler died. I have watched firsthand the power of love and acceptance. I've watched it transform people's lives from failing to thrive to being a well-adjusted human being. A person's greatest need is to be connected, not only to feel like you belong to family, but you long for more than that, that you belong to God, the one that created you. Ephesians 1.6, so powerful. He made us accepted in the beloved. If you believe in Jesus, he has, he has accepted you into the beloved family. Romans 8.15, you receive the spirit of adoption by whom we cry out, Abba, Father. We cry out to God, Daddy, Papa. Psalm 27.10, when my father and my mother forsake me, the Lord will take care of me. Maybe your family's rejected you, cut you off. Maybe you feel forsaken, but the Lord will accept you. You can cry out, Abba, to him, Papa. And the powerful thing about all of this, you guys, is that Jesus himself experienced the ultimate abandonment, the ultimate rejection, the ultimate being forsaken on the cross. In that moment that all of the sins of the world was poured out upon him at the cross, all my guilt and shame, all of your guilt and shame, billions of people's guilt and shame was poured out on Jesus at the cross. If you've ever felt that awful dread and sickness from the guilt and shame of your own sin, imagine it multiplied by billions poured out upon the Lord Jesus. And then he cried out in that moment as he who knew no sin became sin for you and I. He cried out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Why are you so far from me helping me and from the words of my groaning? You see, Jesus knows what it's like to minister to a person that feels forsaken because he himself experienced that forsaken experience. Hebrews 2.17 says, therefore in all things he had to be made like his brethren that he might be a merciful and faithful high priest in things pertaining to God to make propitiation for the sins of the people. Jesus gets it. Jesus understands. Even though him and the Father were connected throughout eternity, in that moment of separation when he cried out, my God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? And then as he pays the price for sin, and conquers death and the renewed relationship between the Father and the Son after his death upon the cross and the resurrection, he now makes a way for you and I to be fully accepted, embraced, loved. Even in our sin, while we were yet sinners, Christ died for the ungodly. There's nothing that can separate us from his love. And you can be as calloused as you want. You can have as much tough macho bravado as you want. But the reality is, deep inside of you, male, female, young, old, doesn't matter, is this longing, this longing, this desperate longing to be connected and accepted by God and the people around you. My greatest need, and once I experience that, then I 
my greatest need is followed by my need to respond. Because the next sacrifice is unusual. It's, it's different than the other one where an animal is your substitute. Now this is the grain offering. And through this grain offering, as you offer this uh, for a Jewish person in that day, it would be responding now to God. Check it out in chapter 2, verse 1. When anyone offers a grain offering to the Lord, his offering shall be of fine flour, and he shall pour oil on it and put frankincense on it. He shall bring it to Aaron's sons, the priests, one of whom shall take from it his handful of fine flour and oil with all the frankincense, and the priest shall burn it as a memorial on the altar, an offering made by fire, a sweet aroma to the Lord. The rest of the grain offering shall be Aaron's and his sons. It is most holy of the offerings to the Lord made by fire. So you bring this fine flour. He gives three different versions. You can bring fine flour. You can bring uh, flour that has been baked or it's been pan fried. And these different options that are in this chapter. But the reality is you're now responding to God's goodness. And you're coming and this fine flour representing, once again, your life, now anointed with oil and frankincense. So there's an anointing of God's spirit. There's a beautiful aroma that's now coming from your life as you respond to God. In verse 11, it says, No grain offering which you bring to the Lord shall be made with leaven, for you shall burn no leaven nor any honey in any uh, offerings to the Lord made by fire. So he tells us that there's also something that's not to be there. You can't present leaven with it, which is yeast, to make, it puffs things up. You ladies that cook with, uh, bake all the time, you put the yeast in, and it puffs things up. And throughout the scriptures, leaven is a picture of pride or sin. And so if you're going to offer, <laughs> respond to God, he doesn't, your pride is not real useful. <laughs> it doesn't, God says, don't, don't, don't offer that to me. And he also says, don't offer me honey, which is a natural sweet substance. He's like, you might come, you know, there's some people that are just naturally sweet. Do you get that? Right? Have, do you have one? My mom is that way. I still remember the annoying voice, my mom, that was so sweet. But when you're a teenager, you're annoyed. My mom would come in and say, Ricky, it's 730. It's time to get up. So sweet. And I put my pillow over my head. Ricky, it's 7.45, it's time to get up. My mom was so sweet. But some people are so naturally sweet. But the thing is, when you come to the Lord and you respond to God, our pride, our elevated perspective of who we are, or our natural sweetness is really not to be offered. Because you see, it's not our sweetness that endears us to God. It's the blood of the Lord Jesus that brings us into that relationship. Not just your sweetness or your niceness. And, and it's not that you deserve it in your pride or your arrogance. The Lord says, you know, if you want to respond to me, humility <laughs> and, and just coming as you are as a broken sinner is the way I want you to approach. And then he says in verse 13, every offering of your grain offering you shall season with salt. You shall not allow the salt of the covenant of your God to be lacking from your grain offering. With all your offerings you shall offer salt. 
So all the offerings had salt. Now, salt was the great preservative of the ancient world. We live in an age of refrigeration, which we've lost you know, the understanding of how important salt was. They got, uh, their wages was paid in salt. It was so important because it would preserve meats. So you had salted meat, salted beef, salted fish, salted everything to kill the bacteria. And so it also was a, the preservative that your covenant with God, it was a picture that it will, it'll continue on. Because Jesus tells us in Matthew 5, 13, you are the salt of the earth. But if salt loses its flavor, that's good for nothing because they did not have anodized salt. So it lost its flavor. So they'd just throw it out into the pathway to keep the weeds down. You see, you might make a covenant with God and respond to God in a season of your life. But when you make a covenant with God with salt, it is a preserving covenant that you'll continue on. Is it enough to have a great six months of commitment to God in a 80 years of life? Isn't it important that your walk with God continue to persevere and be preserved? Salt also has this quality of, of, of speech. It says in Colossians 4, 5, and 6, walk in wisdom toward those who are outside, redeeming the time. Let your speech always be with salt, uh, grace seasoned with salt, that you may know how you ought to answer each one. In our walk with the Lord, he says, you are the light of the world. So let men see your good works that they glorify your Father in heaven. So the light of the world is my actions. But here he says, but you are the salt of the earth. That is my speech. So my speech and my actions need to come together. And, and as I'm responding to the Lord, how do you respond to the Lord for everything that Jesus has done for you? Romans 12 Verses one and two tell us, I beseech you therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, that you present your bodies a living sacrifice, holy, acceptable to God, which is your reasonable service, and do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind, that you may prove what is that good and acceptable and perfect will of God. You see, as I offer my body as a living sacrifice to God, and I respond to God because of what Jesus has done for me, and then not to be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of my mind. Because as God's spirit and word transforms my mind, I now will know what is God's good, acceptable, also can be translated pleasing, and perfect will of God. Do you know that those are varying degrees as you seek the Lord? As you offer yourself to the Lord, don't you want to know his will for you? Every single one of you have unique lives with unique trajectories, with unique circumstances, and God wants to lead you into his perfect will. Now, are you okay with his good will, his pleasing will, or do you want the perfect will? These are varying degrees as you press into the Lord. That, hey, I want to know what God, what's good, what's pleasing, and what's perfect, and be able to evaluate those things so that I offer myself to the Lord. But I think one of the cool things about this Old Testament sacrifice and revealing to us the need to respond is the frankincense. It's a fragrance. Do you know that each one of you have an odor, a fragrance? Each one of you, and I'm not talking about the physical, though you do, no doubt, right? Have you ever noticed that family, uh, families have a certain odor, like you come into this house and it smells like this, and you go into that house and it smells like this, or you hug this person and they smell like this, or, or you know, 
something happens in an older generation of ladies that they seem to hit the perfume a little harder than they did when they were 20, right? And it's like a little fog just going down the road. And you get a hug and you walk away smelling like a bouquet of flowers. But your life has a fragrance. As you respond to the Lord, this is how Paul says it in 2 Corinthians 2. For we are to God the fragrance of Christ among those who are being saved and among those who are perishing. To the one, we are the aroma of death leading to death. And to the other, the aroma of life leading to life. When you hang out with people, the life of Jesus is an aroma of life. But to them... It's an aroma of death if they reject God because your beautiful aroma condemns their life of sin. So it's this aroma that you're moving through life with. My daughter got these three jobs right in a row and she has this long, beautiful blonde hair. It goes all the way down to uh, her belt down here and she has this gorgeous blonde hair. So she said, I want to work at a coffee shop. You know, one of those barista places. And I'm like, cool. And she was like 15. And so she got a job and she learned how to make coffee. So every day she would come home, I would give her a hug, hey honey, how was your day? And her hair smelled like coffee, which I love the smell of coffee. I'm like, mmm, that smells wonderful. And she's in this little hut, you know, all day long making coffee. And so everywhere she went after that, she smelled like coffee. And then she said, I want to work at a bakery. So she got this job at a bakery after that. She's like, got, she has her bucket list, a very young bucket list. She's 16, she goes to work at this bakery and she had come home and I would hug her and she smelled like baked bread, like cookies and baked, mmm. I gained about 10 pounds through that season because she kept bringing this bag of chocolate chip cookies that there was six chocolate chip cookies in it. Each one of them was 700 calories. I would eat it, the whole bag. So I got a little fluffy during that period of time. But then my daughter said, you know what? I want to work in an indoor arena with horses. So she went to this indoor arena and she was the prepper. This guy would ride 10, 12 horses a day and my daughter would prep. She would saddle the horses, she would uh, bridle the horses, and then when he was done, she would wash the horses and she would clean the stalls and stuff. So every day she came home from the arena and I would hug her. Her blonde, beautiful hair smelled like horse urine. I'm like, oh, honey. Go take a shower. You better not go out with your friends yet. You better go take a shower. Do you know that the life that you're living right now is producing an aroma, a fragrance? To those who know the beauty of Jesus, it's like this fragrance of life. And for others, they smell it as an aroma of death. You see, my response to the Lord changes the responses of others as I move through this life. And my goal is to just honor the Lord and let everybody be impacted however God wants to produce that with those aromas and those fragrances. So we have the need to belong, we have the need to respond, and now we have the need for peace. And probably like no other time in our lives for this last couple of years, we have this tremendous need for peace. And they had this tremendous need for peace. So they had an offering, a peace offering. In chapter three, verse one, it says, when his offering is a sacrifice of a peace offering, if he offers it of the herd, whether male or female, he shall offer it without blemish before the Lord. And he shall lay his hand on the head of his offering and kill it at the door of the tabernacle of meeting. And Aaron's sons, the priests, shall sprinkle the blood all around the altar. Then he shall offer from the sacrifice of the peace offering an offering made by fire to the Lord. 
Lord. The fat that covers the entrails and all the fat that is on the entrails, the two kidneys and the fat that is on them by the flanks and the fatty lobe attached to the liver above the kidneys, he shall remove. And Aaron's sons shall burn it on the altar upon the burnt sacrifice, which is on the wood that is on the fire as an offering made by fire, a sweet aroma to the Lord. Verse 16 and 17, and the priest shall burn them on the altar as food, an offering made by fire for a sweet aroma. All the fat is the Lord's. Don't you like that? That's your fat-free diet right there. All your fat. It's, of the, it's the Lord's. Verse 17, this shall be a perpetual statute throughout your generations. In all your dwellings, you shall eat neither fat nor blood. Now, this sacrifice of peace offering and the fatty lobe, all the in, internal fatty parts that are on the kidneys and the liver and the various things, those parts are to be offered to the Lord and that fat is to the Lord. And in a sense, more details about the entrails of fat that you're offering to the Lord. Now, this is a peace offering. Now, let me just ask you, do you need peace? Now, isn't peace that inward part of you, nobody else can see the turbulence in your soul here tonight? Maybe it's a lack of peace with one of your children. They're, they're going bonkers. Maybe it's a lack of peace within your marriage. Maybe you got financial stresses. Maybe there's trouble at work and there's just this, this angst, this anxiety, this deep inside of you that as you offer it to the Lord, that he will promise you and give you a supernatural peace in exchange. The Lord gives us the peace of God and then peace with God and then peace that protects us and guards our hearts. Check it out. Peace with God, Romans 5.1, through our relationship with Christ. Therefore, having been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Through faith in Jesus Christ, I now have peace with God. Because before, the Bible says there's enmity. I'm at odds with God. As a matter of fact, I'm under the wrath of God until I come to Christ. That there's this fearful expectation of falling into the hands of the living God and that angst when you know you're not right with God. That kind of agitation, that kind of anxiety, that kind of stress that you know you're not right with God makes you either run from God or grope and find God. So here this peace offering in this Old Testament sense was so important for people to tap into the peace, the supernatural peace that God has for each one of us. Once I have peace with God, then I'm much, much more stable because think about the people that are having nervous breakdowns. Think about the people that are just medicating themselves into a numb stupor because they, they just want to have peace, right? You just go to the doctor, get it in a bottle. I need peace in a bottle. But God says, you know what? Why don't, why don't you get this peace first, peace with God, have you given your life to Christ? He's the Prince of Peace. He'll come in and set up a new relationship and bring wholeness to your life so that you know you're right with God. You should be able to, in total peace, say, if I died when I leave this place or in this moment, I have peace with God that I'm gonna go to heaven and be with him. You see, that kind of peace is the kind of peace that as I'm ministering to my mom over these last few months and my mom in her walk with Jesus, she was at total peace with God. She was ready to go. She's 
82 years old. She said, I've lived a long life. Heaven is waiting for me. She has a great family reunion up in heaven waiting for her. Her parents are there. So many people that she knows and loves are going to be there. She has peace with God. Now, when people approach death and they don't have peace with God, it's a whole different story. There's a, a fearfulness and an anxiety. When my grandmother was passing away of liver cancer, we were talking to the hospice nurse, and the hospice nurse said, this is my last client. I've done this for 13 years, and I can't take it anymore. The last client that I had did not know the Lord, and it was the most awful ending of life I've ever experienced in my life. She said, I, I just can't do it anymore. She said, as a hospice nurse in her place of faith, she comes in, if the people have faith, she said, it's like night and day when they have peace with God. She said, when they don't have God, she said, it is terrible. It is awful. Because they only have this fearful anxiety of what is waiting for them, and they're unwilling to surrender. Nobody sees it like a hospice nurse, even the hospice nurse that was there this week. We were sharing with her some things that my mom was doing. My mom was seeing things and reaching for things and hallucinating. And, and the hospice nurse came in. And the hospice nurse, how's your day, Danya? She says, trippy. <laughs> and the hospice nurse said, good trippy or bad trippy? And my mom's like, no, good trippy. And the hospice nurse, she didn't know where we were at with faith. She's brand new to this you know, situation. She came in and she said, I don't know where you guys are at in your faith. But she said, I just want you to know the last few days of a person's life, they start crossing over. They start seeing things that are heavenly. They start reaching for things. There's this collision of two worlds, a supernatural world and a physical world, and they come together right there at the deathbed of an individual. She said, it's real. And so my mom's beginning that, that crossing over and looking at this and talking about her mom and various things are starting to happen. And yet she has peace with God. And since she has peace with God, as I sit with her, I have total peace because I have peace with God and my mom has peace with God. And so I know where she's gonna go. I know I'm gonna see her again. You see, this is, this is not goodbye forever. This is just goodbye for a little while and I'm going to be there pretty soon because, you know, a day's like a thousand years and a thousand years is like a day. I mean, some, that, somebody has said that life is like a roll of toilet paper. The shorter it gets, the faster it goes. <laughs> right? And, and as we get older, things escalate. But peace with God, but then having the peace of God. In our circumstances, in John 14, 27, Jesus said, peace I leave with you, my peace I give to you, not as the world gives do I give to you. Let not your heart be troubled, neither let it be afraid. Jesus said, I'm gonna leave my peace with you. It's a supernatural peace. When you have peace with God and then the peace of God for the daily experiences of life, he said, I'm gonna leave that with you. As a matter of fact, Jesus told his disciples when they went out and they preached, when they came to a house, when they went two by two and they, they traveled the area, he said, when you come to a house, speak to that house and say, peace be upon you in this home. And he said, if there's a worthy person there that will embrace that peace of God, then remain. But if not, your peace will return to you. You say, wait a second. You mean like peace is an actual quality of life that you bring with you. 
That everywhere you go as a child of God, when you go to a home or you go to a family, wherever it might be, my children, they would, uh, my son had this one friend and he said, I know God is real because when I go to Caleb's house, there's this tremendous peace that I sense there. It's like tangible. My wife's aunt, who was 80 years old, and she grew up in the LDS faith, and she served at the LDS Word. She said, I love to go to Rick and Tammy's house because there's a peace of God there that I love to go and enjoy. Do you know that you, it doesn't matter who you are, if you're a child of God, you bring that peace with you. It's the peace that you have with God, and it's the peace of God that is emanating from your life, no matter what the turbulence that is going on. Now, we also need the peace of protection because, you know, we do get anxious thoughts. We do get anxious about pressures and burdens, as it says, be anxious for nothing in Philippians chapter 4, but in everything by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God, and the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and minds through Christ Jesus. So it guards your heart, your emotions, and your mind, your thoughts, when you give those to God. So I got a bucket of problems. That's what I tell people through years of counseling. I got a whole bucket of problems. Maybe you guys came in here with a bucket of problems. Maybe you guys don't have problems, but I got problems. I got bucket loads of all kinds of stresses. And, and so when I'm stressed out about those things and I, it robs me of my peace, and then I cast all my cares on the Lord because he cares for me. So I just, I pray I, those supplications, um, prayer requests with thanksgiving. Thank you, God. I know you got this. You're going to take care of it. And I make my request known to him. And as I dump out my bucket of problems, he in exchange gives me a torrent of his peace that protects my emotions and my mental state. Maybe even here tonight. Now, people say, well, I did that last week. And I always smile to myself. Well, have you been stressed out since last week? Well, I said, yeah, lots. And I was wondering, uh, you know, I prayed that prayer once. They said, how often do you do this? You know, casting all your cares on God because he cares for you. I said, as much as needed. That means if I pour out my heart to the Lord and then I have peace for two hours and then I start getting anxious as I start thinking about it again, then I do it again and I do it again and I do it again and I do it again. And what happens is prayer becomes as natural as breathing. I got problems, Jesus help me. I got problems, Jesus help me. The peace of God is the gift that is given to the child of God to face what this life throws at you with a tranquil heart because you know, even though you don't know what the future is all about, you know who holds the future and you're telling him all about it. You see, in all these things, these are things that our soul has the greatest need. Do you know that people that pray, they have, I mean, they've, they've done these studies about health, mental health, stability, lower blood pressure, all those things. People that pray have lower blood pressure. <laughs> That's something. Because I have this release valve from the anxiety in my life that I just give to the Lord. And he can handle it. Isn't that cool? But what do we do? When we're stressed out, we call everybody we know and tell them all about it. None of them can do anything for you. But we tell everybody. Now I'm like, you were just on the phone for three hours with four different people. Why didn't you just pray and tell the Lord? Now if you're on the phone telling those people or inviting those people to pray with you, then that's good. That's golden. 
But if you just tell everybody else you're complaining, this is the crazy thing. Pour all your complaints out to the Lord. If you're complaining about your boss, if you're complaining about your spouse, we'll do it in a place that's private so they don't hear. But do it in a way that you can pour your heart out. Because God can handle it and they can't. A couple that I did, did their wedding, about eight months later, they got a divorce. Because the man, his name was Neil, Every day he would pour out his heart in prayer to the Lord in a written form. And then he'd wad it up and throw it in the garbage and go to work. Well, his newlywed wife would go in the garbage and pull out his wrinkled up prayer to God and read. But he was pouring his heart out to the Lord about the things he was struggling with, he was challenged with. So she left him. You see, God can handle what no human can handle. Note to self, don't throw it away in the garbage where they can get it. Burn it, eat it, flush it. Right, if you're going to write things down. I know a guy that loves to type out his prayers on his computer that way. But it's this, uh, it's like white. I don't know how this works. But it's, it's like invisible typing, but he forces. So do some invisible typing if you need to. But the kind of peace that you're looking for is only offered. Jesus says, the, the, the way I give peace is not like the world gives peace. When people are stressed out, you know, I'm just going to go get drunk. The bummer is when you wake up in the morning with a hangover and a headache, it's even harder to face that same challenge, right? right because it didn't go away. Or I do illicit drugs, or I do illegal drugs, or I do pharmaceutical, you know, the prescription drug, whatever it is. I'm just trying to escape. I'm trying to get a quality. I'm somehow trying to stop the noise in my head of anxiety. God says, you know what? You can have peace with me. I'll give you my peace. And anytime you're stressed out, you just pour your heart out to me, and I'll download the peace that you need in your soul. Therefore, you can face the most challenging things with God's grace and God's peace. These three things, the other two we don't have time to get to, the the need to confess, I need to confess my sin. But notice these things are all built up before that time. I need to belong, I need to respond, I need his peace, I need to confess my sin, I need to restore how I've wronged others and make it right in the process. That need to belong is so powerful, one day, I had uh, been with my, um, playing ball with my son at home, and my son, who was in second grade, he said, Dad, would you come to the playground someday at school, at the elementary public school where he went to school, and would you play ball with me and my friends? I said, sure. Seems like a simple thing, right? You just go down there. It was cold. I think it was like February or something, so I went down and I had, you're all bundled up, it's Idaho, and uh, I had gloves and a big heavy coat, so I went to the principal's office and said, hey, I'm Caleb Brown's dad, and he invited me to come for recess, I wanted to talk to you, let you know that there's not a terrorist on the, 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 uh, so I'm not arrested and taken down or something, and and let the, uh, whoever the monitor is on the, the playground know. 
So I went out there, but I wasn't really thinking. It's recess with 300 kids. And I'm just thinking my son's going to come up and a few friends, and then we're going to throw the ball around a little bit, and I'm going to go home. <laughs> but I'm an adult with a ball that's willing to play with kids, so all 300 come. And uh, they... And I'm thinking to myself, I, I hadn't planned for this, and I'm, a little, I'm starting to think, and now I'm surrounded by these little knee-high uh, children, about 300 of them, and I'm trying to think to myself, how can I get out of this? How can I make this work? And then when somebody in the back said, get him, and they all just took me down, and it was like this big, big huge dog pile and, and mob, and, and, uh, and so I get up, and I'm like, hey, guys, you know, I'm going to get in trouble with the teacher, I'm going to trouble with Principal, let's kind of think. And so one of the kids had a soccer ball. I said, let's play soccer. And I kicked it as far as I could, you know, about 50 yards away. And all the kids ran after it except my son and his couple of friends. But when I stood up, after, after I kicked the ball, a kid came up and grabbed a hold of my leg. And he was hanging onto my leg and he had his head down. And my son was here with his three friends. And this kid was saying, my daddy, my daddy. And I was looking down at him and I looked at Caleb kind of like, Who's this? That's my son, right? I had no illegitimate kids in the area that I knew of. <laughs> and, um, and Caleb just shrugged. But his friend said, oh, that's so-and-so. And his dad left four months ago, left his mom and their family. And so his dad no longer lives at home. And here was this little kid. I was a total stranger and I just came on the playground to play with a kid and he wrapped his arms around my leg and said, my daddy, my daddy. And that moment when it really struck me about that, you know, crying out, Abba, Father, that longing of a child's heart to be connected to a dad. There's nothing I could do in the moment. I bent down and got down on my knee and, and I hugged the kid and then he ran off and chased the soccer ball and went playing. But it's a beautiful thing to be a part of a family that has a message that God loves you and he will be your father through faith in Christ Jesus. That he will accept you, he will love you, you will belong, you'll be able to respond, he'll give you his peace and he will give you abundant life. So we turn our hearts now towards communion. We get to celebrate that life that's given to us. If you'll grab the cup, Take the bread. Our worship team's gonna come up. Pray with me as we remember the Lord's body that was broken for us and his blood that was shed for us. Lord Jesus, thank you for making all this possible. Thank you for being the faithful high priest that can sympathize with our weaknesses, that knows what it's like to be forsaken, to know what it's like to belong in intimate relationship and fellowship with another. And Lord Jesus, I pray tonight that by your spirit, whatever brokenness, whatever the diminishing factor of the quality of your people's lives that are here tonight, that they have drug around with them, believing the narrative that they are unloved or they're forsaken or they're abandoned and have been abandoned by family. Lord, I pray that you would change that narrative, Lord Jesus, with your love and your grace and your acceptance, that we are accepted in the beloved, that we are loved supernaturally by a God whose very nature and description is love.
Lord, I pray that you would melt the hearts of those who are icy and cold because of being hurt and pain and all of those things and wanting to distance themselves because of feeling rejected. I pray that you would melt them with your love. And Lord Jesus, you came and made a way to do that. Lord, as we take the bread and we break it and we bless it and we take it, Lord Jesus, thank you for giving your body for us to make a way for this relationship to happen. Let's take the bread together. As we hold the cup, Lord Jesus, the symbol of your blood that was shed to wash away our sins, just as the sacrifices we see in the book of Leviticus point towards your ultimate sacrifice, Jesus. The lifeblood of an animal poured out as a substitute, but your lifeblood was poured out to be our substitute. Jesus, thank you for your blood that washes us clean. Lord, there's no sin that any of us have failed in this week that we can't come to you and ask and confess our sins and you're faithful and just to forgive us and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Lord, as we hold the cup, the symbol of that cleansing power, you said as often as we do this in remembrance of you, Lord, we remember what you've done and we pray that that cleansing flood would wash over us right now to refresh us, to wash away our shame, to wash away our guilt, to wash away our failure by your grace. Thank you, Jesus, for your blood that was shed for us. Let's take the cup together. Amen. I've seen the light in the darkness. I want hope for the hopeless and rest for the weary mind. And you've got truth for the taking, but my heart won't be shaken if today be the day that I die. Whoa, oh. Whoa, 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 now I won't worry about tomorrow or fear in times of trouble. I keep my heart seeking you. Oh, I will keep my heart seeking you. Whoa, whoa. I will keep my heart seeking.